0: Welcome to Iraq Legacy of War, brought to you by Intelligence Squared. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. In this limited series, we're looking at the legacy of the war in Iraq 20 years after the US-led invasion in March 2003. Join us as we look back at one of the most significant military interventions in modern history and address how its legacy has defined global tensions and foreign policy today. If you missed our previous episodes, where we discussed the road to war, the failures and chaos after the invasion, and the rise of ISIS, do go back and listen now. Today's episode features a live event which Intelligence Squared hosted in London in March 2016. We put Tony Blair on trial and examined his legacy on foreign policy, health, education, and much more. He is the man who reinvented Labour, won a landslide majority in 1997, and went on to win three elections becoming Labour's longest-serving Prime Minister. He is also the man accused of lies, hubris, money-making deals and taking us into an illegal war. Leveling charges against him was Tom Bauer, investigative journalist and author of Broken Vows, Tony Blair and the Tragedy of Power. Defending him was the journalist and Times columnist David Aronovich. As they slugged it out, Bauer and Aronovich called on a panel of specially chosen expert witnesses to bolster their case. The event was hosted by the BBC journalist and presenter of the Today programme, Nick Robinson.
1: Members of the jury, thank you so much for joining us here today. I'm I'm very disappointed to be described merely as the chair. I thought of myself as the Right Honourable Lord Justice. Robinson here today I asked for a gown I asked for a wig but sadly they were not available can I just say at the outset I've got a little bit of a cold so forgive a slightly crusty sound to the voice forgive me for that we are essentially going to hear from our two key uh, proponents tonight for the prosecution and for the defense and then from a series of four witnesses so let me introduce you to them And then we'll get going uh, with our trial. Remember that what is on trial is not merely the man, Tony Blair, on trial, but a proposition. Tony Blair was a blight on Britain. So bringing the charge against Blair, Tom Bower. Why is he doing it? Well, because, of course, he's just published a book, Broken Vows, Tony Blair and the Tragedy of Britain. As you will know, though, uh, he is one of Britain's leading investigative journalists and prides himself in producing unflinching biographies of Robert Maxwell, Mohammed Fayed, Gordon Brown, Richard Branson, and Conrad Black. Interesting word there, unflinching, means he says the things they don't want to hear. Defending Tony Blair today, David Aronovich, who is author of another book, not strictly related to this, but a damn good book it is too, and you can buy it afterwards. Party Animals, My Family, Another Communist, David is, of course, one of Britain's leading columnists and journalists. I declare an interest. He was my first editor in television as well. And uh, there will be other books of his on sale as well outside afterwards. We're going to hear from both of them and uh, we're going to get you to vote, as I said. And to bolster their case, they have expert witnesses here. So from the left, a witness for the prosecution will be Professor Margaret Brown, who's Emeritus Professor of Mathematics Education at King's College London. Next to her, Michael Clark, Director General of RUCI, the Royal United Services Institute, up until last year. Next to him, Matthew Taylor, Chief Executive now of the RSA, but a Downing Street Advisor to Tony Blair for many years. And finally, John McTernan, Tony Blair's Director of Political Operation for quite a few years as well. But let us... Um, get straight on with the trial itself. And to start with, we are going to make the case, hear the case made for the prosecution against Tony Blair. Tom Bauer is going to have 10 minutes, and my high-tech device will be throughout. Can you hear this? No. Right. One ping means you've got a minute left, or in the witness's case, 30 seconds. Two minutes means wrap up, or technically Shut up now and sit down, because you're over your time. Tom Mow, would you care to make the prosecution case against Tony Blair?
2: Good evening. In May 97, Tony Blair was supremely popular. Britain's wanted change. His charming personality and promise to be purer than pure, whiter than white, was a relief from the fractious, sleazy Tory regime. Now, nearly 20 years later, we want to understand what went wrong. How come that virtuous character is a derided carpetbagger? Were we all fooled at the outset by a brilliant actor, or did an honest hero fall victim to the temptations of power? Did he embark on government in bad faith, or, infected by vanity and uncertain values, did he lose his way? For a start, the mistake made by the electorate was thinking that Blair arrived in Downing Street with a programme for government. He didn't. Despite all his promises, he had devoted his energy to winning the election and ignored largely what would follow victory. But, after a decade in power, he complained that he pulled the levers and nothing happened. He blamed the civil servants' incompetence, and they in turn blamed his ignorance about the skills of management and about his ignorance of history. For Blair, a man blessed with intelligence and remarkable communication skills, was also frighteningly uneducated. Instead of crunching detail, Blair prided himself about relying on what he called instinct and belief. I only know what I believe, he once said, revealing his misunderstanding of governance and so much more. And so, in the brief moments I have, we get to the heart of the problem. Blair's inheritance in 97 was a growing economy, control over immigration, a widespread trust of Britain's robust institutions, but undoubtedly an underfunded NHS and education system. Yet over the previous 18 years, the Tories had developed by trial and error schemes to improve the NHS and education, to defeat what Blair himself would later call the forces of conservatism within those professions. And their solution was to give patients and parents choice and by encouraging competition amongst schools and hospitals, get better service for British citizens. Blair abolished those delicate beginnings. He introduced targets, performance indicators, and in turn cheating on the back of vast expenditure. Of course, there were substantial improvements in the NHS, but not commensurate with a 300% increase in the budget. Billions were poured into the NHS and productivity declined. Doctors and nurses got huge pay increases but worked less hours. Unlike Thatcher, Blair was never heard to say, I want my money well spent. By 2001, Blair realised the Tories had been right and tried to reintroduce thereafter choice and competition. The result was expensive and chaotic. In education, it was the same, The Tories' numeracy and literacy hours for primary school children were genuinely improving standards. Labour kept the headlines but imposed on teachers' targets and told them how to teach. As a result, 11-year-olds were taught how to pass tests but were denied knowledge and understanding. Nine years later, at the beginning of this year, the OECD reported that British undergraduates were classified in literacy and numeracy as the worst of 23 developed nations. That damnation was a direct result of the strategist targets and tests introduced by Blair after 97. You would not have known that truth from Blair's spin. Blairite's statistics were massaged and exam results were inflated. The same deception concealed the government's immigration policy. Blair never told the electorate that he approved the entry of half a million immigrants a year. Those who dared to protest were called racists. The unchallengeable proof of all that dishonesty are the 120 civil servants I interviewed for the book, plus, of course, the dozens of Labour politicians and Blairites prepared to confess the truth. I believe we can rely on the identical credibility from the dozens of military officers and the most senior civil servants about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Two wars launched on the basis of lies. How could a mature democracy like Britain commit itself to fight those two wars on a false prospectus. Was Blair gripped by a god or a demon to so willfully ignore the predictions of disaster? No one predicted in '97 Blair's interest in war. After all, he'd even avoided the cadet force at school. It had turned Britain into a global troubleshooter, what he called a force for good. Convinced he could rid the world of tyrants, he never considered the consequences behind the headlines. The result was an undermanned, ill-equipped and underfunded and fatally misguided British army dispatched to fight the biggest war since Korea based on faulty intelligence, misjudged purposes and from both they were returned humiliated. That occurred because Blair excluded from his office experts who were critical. He acted on instinct rather than knowledge and he exacted in a conspiratorial secrecy because he knew his military ambitions in Iraq were illegal. Blair was not Bush's poodle. Ever since he joined Clinton in bombing Iraq in 98, he had wanted to topple Saddam. He always supported regime change. That desire intensified after 9-11, the Islamic attack on New York. Blair's problem was that an unprovoked war to topple Saddam was illegal under British law. So having secretly settled in November 2001 on that policy, 16 months before Iraq was invaded, he contrived a smokescreen to justify the invasion namely Iraq's supposed possession of WMDs in defiance of the UN. Let's be clear about the lie. For 16 months, Blair told the British people that Iraq's WMDs posed a fatal threat forbidden by the UN. But his real intention was regime change. Whitehall's traditional machinery of government would have stopped that chicanery, but Blair's sofa government had deliberately dismantled the safeguards to halt his ambitions. Until July 2002, seven months after 9-11, Blair's intention to join Bush's invasion was known to very few in Downing Street. Those deliberately excluded were the Cabinet, the Cabinet Secretary, the Defence Chief and the Permanent Secretary of the Defence Ministry. To go to war without all their advice was unprecedented. Even in July 2002, when Admiral Mike Boyce, the Chief of the Defence Staff, was not even then told that a decision had been taken. Nevertheless, Boyce warned Blair about the dangers. From that moment, he was regarded with suspicion. He told truth unto power. On the eve of war, Blair tried to fire Boyce. Afghanistan was the same. Intelligence was wrong. The army was undermanned, untrained, underfunded. 453 people died. Hundreds have been maimed. And it cost Britain £38 billion for nothing. And the worse and worse, the damage to Britain's military was compounded. The army's plight today mirrors that of Britain's education institutions, the NHS, the judiciary, the city and parliament. So many British values have been tarnished by Blair, not least the absence of any shame of wrongdoers in public life. So in conclusion, Blair's decade did make a difference, but it was the wrong difference. He tapped the right sentiments but betrayed the people's trust. Blairism was not an ideology nor a set of principles. It was a concoction of intentions, dressed up in verbless prose, usually mentioning modernisation. But it was modernisation without meaning. Unlike Thatcherism, there is no Blairism. In the name of Britain, he fought wars to remove dictators, and now profits from serving dictators. Did Blair suddenly change after leaving the Street, or was he always a charlatan who concealed his true character through spin? In my opinion, he was an uneducated opportunist, whose decade was a missed opportunity, and the tragedy is a blight on Britain for the rest of our lives. Thank you very much.
1: Tom Bauer, thank you very much indeed. Now the case for the defence. David Aronovich has 10 minutes and the 35 extra seconds that Tom took. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. First, let's try
3: to think back to those terrible days when Tony Blair was in power and how awful it was and how dreadful we felt in 2001 just before we gave him a second election victory and how very bad we felt again in 2005 when we gave him a third election victory and how dreadful MPs felt about the entire ten years of Tony Blair's prime minister when on his last prime minister's question time, at the end, they broke into spontaneous applause from all sides of the chamber. And the question that I suppose we have to ask ourselves in relation to what Tom has said was, were they fooled by disaster into not realising that disaster was disaster? Somehow or other, the victims of an incredible contract, which at that point had been going on for 15 years. Because if that's true, and we were all fooled into this extraordinary contract for those 14 years, then actually the people who should be on trial here is us and not Tony Blair. Or is there just a possibility, a third possibility, that Tom Bauer has not considered, which is that in that ten years, Tony Blair did quite a lot of things which were both necessary and good, and that many times and often the people of this country and members of Parliament and others, not just within the Labour Party, supported him for doing it? You could argue that one of the signal achievements of the Blair administration was the Good Friday Agreement of 1998 and the subsequent events in Northern Ireland that brought to an end a conflict in which 3,500 British citizens had died over the years, including 800 British military. And to give you some kind of context, that is more than were died in Afghanistan and Iraq put together. Tom has 68 words on the Good Friday Agreement. 68 words. By contrast, he has 450 words on unsourced tittle-tattle about a supposed relationship between Blair and Rupert Murdoch's third wife, Wendy Deng. Now, I would put it to you as we go through that such an imbalance is not a product of an intention to try and balance the truth for you. There's also a certain kind of looseness in Tom's approach, which I have found on page 13 when he was dealing with communication strategies, is very early in the book. Quote, ensuring that Labour supporters in the media repeated the message had paved the way to victory. The most important ally being John Burt, the BBC's director general, who had contributed to money to Blair's campaign to become party leader whilst still employed by the corporation. The only possible reason for having those two sentences in that proximity and in the same paragraph is to give the impression that John Burt, as a senior figure in the BBC, had lent on the journalists at the BBC to be favourable towards Blair. There's no evidence for that. There's no evidence for that at all. There was a footnote in the book to Anthony Seldon's book which simply says that John Burt did make a contribution to Tony Blair's campaign as Labour leader back in 1994. But the suggestion is clear. And then, when the serialisation came out, you could tell, in a sense, what the least favourable papers to Tony Blair wanted to make of what they thought Tom had done. And this was how the Mail headlined it. "Conman Blair's cynical conspiracy to deceive the British people and let in two million migrants against the rules. Explosive new biography lays XPM's betrayal bare. Tom Bowers' new book... Broken Vows, Tony Blair, The Tragedy of Power, Lays Bare How the PM Presided Over a Silent Conspiracy to Change Face of the UK. Book reveals how Blair instructed ministers to wave tens of thousands of asylum seekers into the UK under the cover of there being economic migrants. Essentially, what Tom is saying is, that there were a lot of asylum seekers. So what the government did was it decided that it thought immigration was a good thing, but everybody else thought it was bad. So it would change the rules on immigration without telling anybody, so people would sneakily get in. And one of the ways that they would do that is that they would rebadge asylum seekers as economic migrants. This is rubbish. It is actually not possible, Tom, to do that. I talked to quite a few immigration experts and also to the man who was responsible for writing the paper that you say was effectively buried by Tony Blair. And this is what he said. Not only are the facts all wrong, not only have you missed out the fact that Barbara Roach's speech to the immigration minister setting out a change in policy was well covered by the BBC, by the Telegraph and other papers, and even I noticed it at the time, and so on, not only did all that happen, but Tony Blair approved, contrary to what it says in your book, and read the, part of the report upon which it was based, and approved the publication of the report, making that recommendation. That's contrary to what you have in your book. And I don't know on what basis you managed to get it wrong, but I do know that it is a very peculiar government that decides to fool people that they're going to do something very quietly and behind their backs as a conspiracy and does it by having a minister make a speech about it, which is covered in the media. But that's actually what happened. And there's a strange kind of back squeak in Tom's book at this point, because what he says about Barbara Roach's speech was, few white Britons were ever aware of Roach's speech, but after hearing about her sentiments on the grapevine, migrants in Britain certainly grasped its importance. Well, Tom, I don't know what kind of Olympian capacity you have to talk to all white Britons and to all migrants, etc., but I have a feeling that Barbara Roach's speech was no more greatly discussed in the streets of Brixton than it was anywhere else. I mean, this is, frankly, a kind of moment when you say something with some kind of impact in mind. You then go on to say that Tony Blair did not care whether or not communities integrated, suggesting that almost any attempt to have a discussion about integrated communities was, in your words, racist. Actually, after the Oldham riots just before the 2001 general election, there were two reports commissioned, one of which was the Cantle Report, which was issued in December 2001, had a very big impact on government, was spoken about by ministers, etc., and which does not even receive... A mention in your book, there is no mention, despite all your talk about integration, etc., of the Cantle report post the Oldham riots, which is extraordinary. And I just use this as an example. I could talk a long time about Iraq, but I won't have the time and I'm not going to. And so we will maybe come on to matters of that later. This is an example, if you like, of skewing the argument about Tony Blair and Tony Blair's legacy. What you won't get in there, you won't get in there kind of little things like the right to roam, the extension of the right to ramble, which was done by the government after 120 years of people trying to change legislation. You get one small sentence in which the term national minimum wage... I actually looked it up in the index. I looked under first under minimum, nothing, and then under national, nothing, and then I looked under wage, and finally, on page 119, there were eight words on the national minimum wage, introduced in 1998... In 2000, 1996, the Conservative prospective candidate for Stafford had said the minimum wage would send unemployment straight back. In 2005, David Cameron, who was that man, said, I think the minimum wage has been a success, yes. It turned out much better than many people expected, including the CBI. Tony Blair presided over, and that government, over a liberalisation of policy on things like gay rights against the opposition of the Conservative Party, both in the Lords and, to a significant extent, in the Commons. For instance, those opponents to equalising the gay age of consent included such luminaries as David Davis, Nigel Evans, William Cash, John Redwood, Ian Duncan Smith and so on. So no wonder they don't like the European Court of Human Rights. It's hardly surprising because actually one of the early judgments of the ECHR in the late 90s was about equalising the gay right of consent. I haven't got much time. I could go on about Welsh devolution, Scottish devolution, the London mayor. I could go on about, and we will talk a bit more about what I think were, and we think were, the education achievements and the health achievements, the way in which we got away from the situation whereby when I first sent my children to primary school in London in the early 1990s before the Blair government, it was an open secret... In fact, it wasn't even seen as well discussed what an impossible situation London's education was in. And now we talk about the very opposite. It's private schools who have got the crisis and not the state schools, which have got a crisis of oversubscription. I'm going to say very finally, Tony Blair's big problem is that he can never be forgiven by two forces in British society. The Labour left and the Tory right, and for the same reason. He can't be forgiven for winning elections for the moderate centre-left. And the Daily Mail has never forgiven him for not actually being a conservative and also for being a liberal prime minister. A prime minister, I would suggest to you that far from being a blight for all his occasional wrong judgments and so on, actually left this country a much better place as evidenced by the Olympics of 2012 than the country he found in 1997.
1: Thank you very much. Well, you've heard the case of the prosecution, you've heard the case for the defence, you'll get the chance to hear in a little while uh, both of them having the chance to respond to some of the points that were made, but before we do that, what we want to do is hear from our expert witnesses, and our first witness I'm going to welcome is Professor Margaret Brown, just to remind you who she is, she's the Emeritus Professor of Mathematics Education at King's College London, and Tom Bauer your witness. I'm afraid the time is short. It's three minutes for each witness, but there will be plenty of time afterwards to come back and plenty of time for you, ladies and gentlemen, members of the jury, for you to interact with the people on the stage as well. Tom Bauer. Uh, Professor Brown, do you think
2: Britain's education, uh, do you think Tony Blair's education policy helped or hindered the education of Britain's children?
4: Right. Um, Well, of course, he started with education as his high priority. We had education cubed rather than intelligence squared as the major aim of his government. And uh, it wasn't long before we began to see things falling apart. And I guess it must have been extremely frustrating and very disappointing to see the results of some of that. First of all, there was panic uh, in the D.F.E. Uh, I was originally involved with the numeracy strategy. And as you watch the results fail to go up, uh, there was deep panic about what was going wrong. First of all, the, the screws were tightened. Teachers were told not only what to teach, when to teach it, how to teach it, exactly what content to cover in what lesson, But they were given lesson plans and told exactly what to say through each lesson. So we reached the state that we'd always laughed at France as having undergone, of the minister being able to say at 11.15 on a Tuesday morning, every year four child is learning the same thing. Um, They tightened it up. They put pressures on teachers and children. um, And they eventually started throwing new ideas to try and get the the results up. But try as they might, the international results were falling catastrophically and the PISA results, both maths and English reading and also science, were all falling over the time. Uh, not only the attainment results, but also the attitudes of children and of teachers were, uh, were going down. There were 20% uh, fewer children that felt that they enjoyed maths Uh, at the end of the period than at the beginning. (laughs) Thank you
1: very much for being disciplined with the time. You'll get a chance to say some more. David Aronovich, your first witness, is uh, Matthew Taylor. Uh, Thank you very much, Professor Brown. Um, Matthew Taylor, you were at number
3: 10 in the last part of the Tony Blair uh, leadership and so on. How would you respond to what Margaret Brown has just said?
5: Well, I'd respond by saying that the LSE's authoritative account of Labour's record in office said that Labour met nearly all its educational attainment targets and reduced socioeconomic gaps between the poorest and the richest in every area of educational attainment. I would secondly point out that the IFS conclusion of Labour's government was that no government in recent history has made so much uh, progress in relation to reducing pensioner poverty and in relation to reducing childhood poverty. I'd add that the effect of Labour's tax and spend policies over their entire term office was highly redistributive. The fact that inequality was rising in the outside world was a challenge for all governments, but Labour's policies were redistributive, which is why inequality held steady in this country while it rose uh, in others. So I think basically I'd offer some facts.
1: Matthew Taylor, thank you very much indeed for being disciplined with the time. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. So our third witness that we're going to hear from is Michael Clark, as I told you before he was Director General of the Royal United Services Institute until last year. Tom Barry, your witness.: uh,
2: Michael Clark, do you think that in launching wars against Iraq and Afghanistan, Tony Blair was actually acting in Britain's interest and honestly telling the British public what his agenda was? I think he was confused in his
6: own mind, to begin with, on Iraq. He, I don't know when he decided on regime change as the real objective. It certainly wasn't WMD, and it wasn't for the Americans either. Wolfowitz, Paul Wolfowitz in the States, has admitted that, in his memoirs. He said, WMD is what we united around. It was the one thing that united everybody, because America was quite disparate as well. I don't know when he decided on regime change, but he came to the conclusion in April 2002, at the Crawford meeting, that the Americans are going to go, whatever happened. And in a sense, his, his, his assumption was, right, if the Americans go, we go with them, right or wrong. And that has been said by some senior civil servants. If the Americans are making a strategic blunder, we cannot allow them to make it alone. That's been said. So that was his basic idea. But then, um, in a sense, his sin is a sin of hubris. Because he says, I, Tony Blair, will deliver the U.S. to the U.N. to legitimize it. And that will bring the Europeans in. And then we'll start a new roadmap to peace in the Middle East. And we'll remake the Middle East on the basis of this. And I, Tony Blair, will bring all these elements together. It was huge arrogance and hubris. And the thing about that strategy is that it it would fail unless it all worked. And in reality, none of it worked. So we ended up on this this rail track towards war, um, which we could not get off after April 2002.
2: Do you think that in in the aftermath of Iraq, he learned the lessons and applied them when it came to the second war in Afghanistan?
6: No. Uh, The decision to get involved in Afghanistan in 2006 was One of the least satisfactory decisions that the British system has made, because it was a pretty big decision. And it was almost made as an afterthought, partly because Afghanistan was going wrong between 2001 and 2003-04. It was getting frozen out by what was happening in Iraq, so nobody was giving enough thought to Afghanistan. And there was almost a sort of trivialization about what was going on. NATO agreed to go nation-building in Afghanistan. When I heard the NATO decision, the North Atlantic Council had made that decision. Who the hell was there? Were they asleep that they're going to go nation-building in Afghanistan? Jeff Hoon was there, it turns out. Um, I couldn't believe it. And it was a huge operation, a huge potential, taken on the basis of pretty poor intelligence and not very good understanding. And in a way, Iraq messed up Afghanistan because... The Iraq problem made it almost impossible to get the Afghanistan problem right. And we wasted five years in Afghanistan so that by the time we recommitted in 2006, we had a much more difficult job to perform. It was very hard indeed.
1: Thank you very much indeed. And our final witness today is John McTurnan, who was Tony Blair's Director of Political Operations. At the end of his time, 2005-2007, your witness, David Ravitch.
3: John, you, you have quite a job to do, because in the first instance, I'm going to ask you to talk about the National Health Service. Mm-hmm. And the second instance, I'm going to ask you to respond to some of those points about Afghanistan and Iraq. So let's start with the Health Service.
7: OK, on the National Health Service, um, what we heard from Tom uh, was just misuse of facts. Their spending on the NHS was not increased by 300% it was increased to the European Union average. For Tom to be right, spending in Britain would have had to be 25% of the European Union average. It's blatantly obvious that what he said isn't true. There was a need for increased spending. Everybody knows that. In the early 90s, waiting lists in Britain were up to seven years for some operations. By the time that Blair left uh, office, they were down to 18 weeks from diagnosis to treatment. That was a huge success. 100 new hospitals... Every A&E either refurbished or rebuilt completely. No junior doctor strikes, and we had an increase in taxation to fund all of that, which was willingly supported by the public in re-electing Tony Blair for his third time. The NHS, an unalloyed triumph. You only have to look around to what it's like now to realise how good the Blair
1: years were. John McTernan, thank you very much indeed. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, to all your witnesses. I'm going to try something rather ambitious here because there's a heck of a lot out there and there's a lot of people. But instead of a formal trial like cross-examination, I'm going to try and pick up the themes that the witnesses have raised in the opening speeches and give us a few minutes on each to try and explore them. I will then announce the results of the pre-vote and then, ladies and gentlemen, I'll give you the chance to make your points as well. You have to be as disciplined and impatient as these guys have been, which is jumping one minute from education to health to Iraq. But I think so far they're doing that really pretty spectacularly. So thank you for doing that. Let's begin, Tom Bauer. I think we should, because a direct challenge was made to you on the facts by David Aronovich, that you have simply got your facts wrong, most particularly on immigration, which nobody else has raised, which is something you describe as a secret policy was publicly announced And the change from asylum seekers to economic migrants that you claim happens is legally impossible.
2: Well, I think what David has done is is a classic left Blairite tactic, which is to confuse, merge, distort, and then come up with a conclusion and accuse everyone of being either racist or wrong or whatever. The point is that within the book, I tell a story of 10 years. And we're actually going to go to immigration, which I thought we'd agree we weren't going to talk about. which uh, well, just
1: forgive me, the only reason I raised it is he says you've got a know, specific no. fact wrong. Yes. Not the whole narrative, no. but a very important so
2: fact. The point is that in 1997, Blair inherited a policy which under the 96 Immigration Act rigidly controlled the number of people who could apply for asylum in Britain and also limited the number of people who could come from the subcontinent. In 97, by the removal of the... Um, Uh, The uh, primary purpose rule and the relaxation of asylum asylum seekers, it opened the door. The figures show it. The statistics show it. They just went up. Now, how did that happen? It was by redefining the policy. And the redefinition of the policy was done by the civil servants with Jack Straw. It's all detailed in the book. It's all on the record from the civil servants book. And it was done by them without announcing it to the public.
1: Very very briefly, David, you're saying basically no, the primary purpose rule is not the same as changing from economic migrants. Well, no, actually, the primary
3: purpose rule has nothing to do with asylum-seeking. Asylum-seeking had gone up by 10 times between 1985 and the time that Tony Blair came to power uh, and so on, and had been a significant problem. The primary purpose rule is a completely different thing. It's about the families, about migrants who had already come to Britain, and in many cases actually become British. That's the point. The main point that Tom makes, however, is that there was a slimy conspiratorial move that rebadged asylum seekers. He says this specifically as economic migrants. That is
1: nonsense. It was impossible to do it, and indeed it wasn't done. Thank you both. You've been, again, very disciplined. I'm whizzing through. The NHS was the last of the domestic policies. I think it would be sensible. Tom Bauer, it's been put to you. you got your facts wrong. You said that health right. spending had increased by 300%. Right. Then, okay. It had increased the EU average okay. of 8% of GDP. Yeah. John, in
2: 1997, the NHS budget was 33.5 billion. Mm-hmm. In 2010, it was 115 billion.
7: What's that? Is that not a triple? You're doing cash to cash. You must do it in real terms. You're not doing, you've got to use it in real terms. I'm talking, about, I'm talking about the NHS budget.
1: Are you talking about cash or are you
7: talking about. He's real not terms? talking in real terms. He's I'm not, talking about real terms budgets. You right. see, this is the whole problem with arguing well, the day. This thought, is exactly. Your problem. You, must me, you must let me say something.
2: This is the whole problem which the book cuts through. <laughs> Every time one says something which is based on a fact, the government publishes a statistic say, the government spending on NHS, this is so simple, It's 33.5 billion. And in 2010, is over 110 billion. There is no dispute about that.
1: Normally, if I asked you your salary 10 years ago, you wouldn't say it had tripled. If uh, inflation had gone up 20% a year, nobody measures anything that way, Tom Bad. Well, so sorry. why can I just ask you yeah. why are you using cash figures? Nobody in this room would ever use cash because figures because that's
2: the way the government presents, the way that Labour presented. The increase in spending okay. throughout their whole period in government... Well, they was, what they claimed it was the tripling. It yeah, was well, the no, this isn't the phony figures. This isn't the, the Gordon Brown Sorry, it's, tripling. So, so,
3: so, so, can I, can so I just make a, make a point? Can can a, the, the figure is clearly ludicrous because you don't allow for things like inflation and so on, let alone the inflation within the costs of the NHS itself. But you don't even make an allowance for an increase in population. Okay. So it, it become becomes kind of a crazy thing. It's not 300% in real terms, even. And when you allow for the factors of what the NHS has to cover, it's nothing like Ridley. that.
7: Well, I mean, the, po- the population of England increased by 5 million uh, over that period, just to, to put a little point there. There was inflation. But the real thing to remember is, during the last period of Tory government, there were winter crises in our hospitals. Flu overwhelmed A&E departments. There were, there were patients on trolleys. Not just in, not in beds, in trolleys and corridors. There were no winter flu crises under the Labour government, because the money went to the hospitals, the money went to care, the okay. waiting list... I think it Tom Bowen's point in his and we, speech, John, we've got the John allow me,
1: it's the point of his speech was not that there were no improvements in the NHS, but mm-hmm. they no, were well, massively we actually, disproportionate yeah. to the investment. Yeah. Yeah. and I'm, I'm explaining
7: exactly what those improvements were and why they are linked to the increase in spending, increase in population, increase in spending, increase in inflation, okay. and the outcomes were, we have got, in Britain, still have them, because the, the, the current government keep to them, the best shortest waiting in
1: a times in the okay. world. John McTenney, thank you very much. I'm sorry to push you, but time is uh, always against us. Let's move on to that minor subject of war, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> that won't raise any emotions. That won't take yeah. any time to get through at all. Now, Tom Bauer, uh, you're not on trial, but Tony Blair is, but in a sense your claims are. You said that Tony Blair effectively faked the threat from WMD And then in your speech you said, no, Sir Richard Dearlove had said this, WMD. Isn't that a problem with your argument? If the Prime Minister is advised, you may think it's bad advice, you may think it's wrong advice, you may even believe that Dearlove was lying. But how can you claim that Blair was lying and then in another sentence say, no, 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 he was told to say this by Sir Richard Dearlove?
2: Well, fair enough, that's a good point. And let me answer it very quickly. If you dismantle the process of scrutinising MI6's intelligence so that it is no longer subject to the rigour of testing it. You do it with one purpose only, because you're satisfied with what they're telling you. And Tony Blair was thrilled, or satisfied, with the Dear Love's report that Saddam had WMDs. And what was critical about that report by Dear Love was that from 1998 onwards, the British JIC, the Joint Intelligence Committee, had said that Saddam did not have them. It was sporadic and patchy. Oh, and the, 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 the JIC uh, summary in 1995 didn't even mention WMDs in Iraq because they'd been destroyed in 1991. They didn't have them. That's the whole point. So why did Dear Love suddenly say they have them? And why did John Scarlett change the accurate judgment that the intelligence is sporadic and patchy and they probably didn't have them to suddenly say, allow Brer to say is extensive, authoritative and they definitely got okay. them. Absol- and that was because, let me finish my sentence.
3: Now Nick's indicating that yes. I should speak now. Yeah. So you now you're don't now, now come talking, me, yeah, yeah, David, come back. Uh, the Butler report made it absolutely clear that if you read the Butler report and the, and, and the excerpts from the reports from the Joint Intelligence Committee they do not say there was no WMD. They actually said that in their best judgment, and as far as they could tell, there probably was WMD and a WMD programme. So I don't know why you said what you said.
2: Because, simple say. now, let me answer that point. And that what, is well, the, the point... the point about your what you're saying your was point. actually wrong? No, your point now about the Butler report, and this is absolutely gets to the heart of it. Robin Butler oh, wow. is well quoted in my book repeatedly. His words checked with him. His report was contaminated by a deal with Downing Street, which was brokered by John Chilcott. And that'll give you the reason The deal why that did what? just tells the, the watered down exactly what was said about WMDs. No. There
1: couldn't have been a So report- let me just be clear, because people went to... Purchase, he the quotes from the just, Joint Intelligence Committee okay. in
3: the report. Just, just quickly,
1: though. You are claiming, let's just be clear, you are claiming that Robin Butler, former okay. Cabinet Secretary, deliberately changed the wording of his own report in a deal to do what? He did what he,
2: what, what he did was he negotiated a form of words which satisfied Downing Street. Okay. And what David is making the mistake, which the media made at the time, is that the heart of Butler's findings are in the appendix, which either you or any of the okay. media read because of the imposition of... Let the, me bring in a, by, the, by the expert emigrate. witness. Let
1: me, let, let me bring in the expert witness, because Michael has not had a chance to, to say... I'll ask you about other things you want to say Michael but are you familiar with the argument that that report was uh, rigged and do you believe it
6: I, I don't know if it's true or not. I mean, I don't know if it's, it was rigged or not. But the, the question of WMDs, it was entirely plausible that Saddam had WMD. He'd used them before. He'd used them on his own people. Yep. They, there were programs around. Nobody quite knew. And remember, intelligence reports are full of bits and pieces. That's the nature of intelligence. Bit of pillow talk, bit of gossip, bit of, bit of this, bit of that. And the intelligence people always put the caveats in. They're, they're full of caveats. you ever see an intelligence report, it's nothing but caveats. And what was happening is that the caveats were, being, were, were just being airbrushed out. And these reports, which were actually pretty tentative, as they always would be, were, sound, were being made to sound as if they were really quite definitive. And the danger, I mean, people used to say to me, what, what lesson should we learn about this? I said, don't do it again. Don't use intelligence as some sort of public opinion former.
1: The question I wanted to ask you is whether you agree with Tom Bauer. Tom Bauer says that he believes that Tony Blair made a decision 16 months out. I thought you were not saying that. You seem to say, we don't know. Well, I, I don't, yeah, I don't know
6: history. if he made that decision so far at I mean, maybe the Chilcott report will tell us. But what, what I do know is that he had decided by April 2002 that, that, that this was going to probably end up in war, not inevitably, but probably. And once you say that right? regime change is what we're after, then war becomes more, more likely.
1: John McDonough, without getting bogged down in Butler or bogged down mm. in Timescales mm. or bogged down in which summit it was Crawford or whatever, it is clear I was reporting at the time, we all, we all knew, every news conference I went mm. to from 2002, we were going to war with Iraq. We all knew it. He just didn't declare it as policy. If that was true,
7: number ten. No, if that was true, why would Tony Blair take a vote in the House of Commons, which would determine whether Britain would go to war or not? It seems it it seems it seems absurd.
6: Well, because then there was the momentum for it. It was very very hard for the Commons to vote any other way. By the time you get to February 2003, you're going to bring the government down. That, I mean, I, I agree. That House of Commons vote was not unimportant. It was constitutionally quite interesting. It was constitutionally but it was—it was, it was like the nuclear option. If you lose the vote in the Commons at that point, then the government falls, Blair resigns, the thing gets even worse. So there's a great momentum. I mean, that, that vote was a bit, a bit pro-forma. No, really. no the, the,
7: the, the absolutely clear thing is that Tony Blair put this issue to the House of Commons, and they were allowed but to it determine it. And let's be clear as well. Every other country in the world believed Saddam had weapons of mass yeah, destruction. They disagreed true. about what that's to do just about them. That's not true. They disagreed about what to do about them. Is and just finally, not let's
1: be true. absolute. Let's let's be, Tom, let, let Tom come back on that specific. Yeah, Tom on the specific. Uh, Tom, true.
7: There are two.
2: It's just not true. The Germans, the French. Yoska yeah, Fisher said to Ram, uh, to Rumsfeld, "We don't believe your intelligence." when that uh, they didn't believe it. it was the british it was the british government that made out that all these no. people believed in wmds but, but the <laughs> fundamental issue is john there weren't any wmds there has not been any wmds there since 1991 we know that yeah, so yeah. the so what, me, Tom, me, Tom. the war the question, was lie. No, no, i'm
1: sorry that isn't a fundamental question you're accusing the man of knowingly lying in yeah. advance yes so not what, about, what, that, no, not about me, that me, i'm going to ask a question yes so, what we later knew yes. has nothing to do with it. Because what matters is what was known at the time. But that you're the claiming he lied. It's a very, yes. very big claim. Yes. Yes, and because and making... what we later learned yes. doesn't prove that he lied. He may have done, but it doesn't prove it. I tried it in my speech. It's very
2: simple. The WMDs was the smoke screen. Okay. That that he used that, he always in favour of regime change since 1998 and definitely after 9-11. And the WMDs was the only legal reason he could go to war because that
3: was in breach, allegedly. Not only only do I not believe it, but your leading witness, Michael Clark doesn't believe that in 1998 he made a a decision for regime change. Uh, It's completely wrong. Uh, Michael actually laid out very clearly what my understanding also is about what Tony Blair was trying to do and the absolutely optimal situation that he wanted was that he wanted the weapons inspectors in and complete disarmament, which, incidentally, he thought would bring down Saddam, mm. by oh. diplomatic pressure. And as Michael quite rightly says, that was the strategy he was trying to follow that failed. Tom substitutes a strategy that fails with a story of conspiracy and lies, and Tom is
1: right. Briefly, briefly, I want to give Michael the yeah. chance. Well, Michael's been quoted. No,
3: that,
6: that, that is my view. I don't, as I say, I don't know when Tony Blair decided on regime change or whether he only got it from the United States. But he, he certainly did believe that Saddam had to be brought down because he was an evil man. And he believed that it might have been done by peaceful means, but, that's, but by just overwhelming pressure. But that overwhelming pressure was never likely to work, so it left us with only one option, which was to go with the Americans. No, don't
1: worry, we've got, we've got time because the audience are going to ask you questions and I have a sneaking feeling Iraq may come up. <laughs> just a sneaking feeling. But I I tested Tom on his central claim. David, I want to finish by asking you on the central claim on Iraq. You have to argue, don't you, that he hadn't made up his mind. I say, quite when he made it up, doesn't really matter whether he had a vote, doesn't really matter. Clearly, you know, if he'd lost the vote, he would have. The truth is, we all know he'd made up his mind. You would have, if we'd met at that. I went to the Sedgefield News Conference in 2002. We all knew we were going to war with Iraq. Everything else was about how do you assemble the politics in order to justify it.
3: By November of 2002, I think it's probably right that it was alia jacta est, unless Blix came back and mm. said, they've given us absolutely everything we want, here it is, etc. It's overdone and dusted. And that or wasn't... if they
6: got a second vote, a or second got, vote in the UN. They got they a second get... vote. And
3: that wasn't done by March 2003. It is certainly true that Tony Blair regarded the worst possible option as no-one taking action against Saddam, and the second worst is America acting on its own. And the question I would like to put, Michael, is very, very briefly. this really brief. Do you think that George Bush would have invaded Iraq even if Britain had said, we can't participate?
1: Yes. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I've deliberately allowed this section to overrun a little bit because I've sensed you were it engaging and interesting, so it's eaten into your time just a little bit. This is the moment where I have the gold envelope, except they're too mean to give me the gold envelope. This, and I have not read it, is the pre-vote. Before the debate began, Tony Blair was a blight on Britain. 38% agreed, 29% disagreed, and 33% were undecided. Roughly a third, a third, a third. Interesting. Very interesting. We'll take your vote afterwards. So now is your chance to put your points. Who's got the first microphone?
3: My name's Jack Ben-Tarter. As far as I can remember, hand-split, the U.S. weapons, U.N. weapons inspector said categorically there were no WMDs, yet Blair went to war to depose Sudan and then thought that he, there could be imposed democracy in Iraq. A child of under nine could have worked out there is no democracy in the Middle Eastern countries it was a moronic thing yeah. to do.
1: Let's take the next two. Yeah, one over here. Lady at the back.
4: Thank you. Uh you know, I've always been intrigued by we in the West expect a lot of countries that are tribal to actually have democracy. I don't actually think we should expect them to necessarily be democratic. Yeah. Going back briefly to the war, I am quite ashamed yeah. that Dr <laughs> David Kelly's name has not been mentioned tonight.
1: Cheers. Thank you very much indeed for your questions. Yeah, let, let me take one at a time. We're going, to do, we're going to focus on Iraq rather than blight, OK, and be different. Let's start with, if you'll forgive me, we're not going to do David Kelly's death. We That's will do, point. we will do, because no point, nobody knows the answer to that. Yeah. So first of all, Hans Blix, clear point made initially, Hans, Hans, Hans Blix said there were no WMDs, no, we went to war Hans, anyway.
3: Hans Blix said no such thing. Hans simply did not categorically say there were no WMD. What he was able to say was that by the end of his inspection progress, which he hoped would have gone on longer, he had not managed to find any WMD. He told me when I interviewed him in 2007, specifically about an interview he'd had with Jacques Chirac, when he had said to Jacques Chirac, but Mr Chirac, your own intelligence service says Saddam has WMD. Chirac said, ah, spies, he said, they intoxicate each other. So that makes the point about the, French, uh, about the French. On David Kelly, it's really interesting that you should say what you have about him not believing there was any WMD. As Tom actually fairly makes the point in his book, David Kelly, as you say, an absolutely world-class WMD expert, actually did believe that there were WMD in Iraq. And actually, had the level of WMD that he expected to find there been found, we would never, ever have had any of this argument. OK,
2: Tom back.: well, and then Well, I'm keep it brief. Um, the issue about Hans Blix is quite simple. Um, Tony Blair, in his evidence at Chilcot, said it didn't matter about uh, Hans Blix. As far as he was concerned, he wanted war and to remove Saddam. And whether Hans Blix stayed and found WMDs or not... And he knew by then that Blix kept on telling him there are no WMDs. He did. He does say that in Chilcot. I've watched Tony Blair he say, say it. Blix
3: said that.
2: He's, He's, okay. Okay. on. on. Um,
7: thanks. So there's an unfortunate trend of governments to impose legislation to uh, consolidate their power, increase the the power and authority of um, of public authorities or the police or whatever. You can see that Conservative government uh, bringing in the so-called Snoopers Charter. Um, so there's uh, two major pits of legislation that the, um, the Blair government brought in in their first term, whose thrust was to uh, grant powers to uh, non-executive uh, bodies or individuals to hold the government to account.
1: And those were, uh, briefly?
7: Uh, the Human Rights Act and the Freedom of Information Act. Yep. Um, yep. I just wondered if the panel could, could, could uh, comment on those briefly.
1: OK, thank you very much. Tom Bauer, you've been accused of ignoring things that uh, put Tony Blair in a good light. I've no idea whether you did 35 words or 150 on the Human Rights Act. All the Freedom of Information I Act? I think it was none, wasn't it? Well, don't, don't they matter? Don't just, they matter in the balance sheet?
2: I do mention the Human Rights Act in great detail and the Freedom of Information Act. On the Freedom of Information Act, Blair was incandescently furious that he agreed to incorporate it into a legislator and said I was an income poop and an idiot to do it. On the Human Rights Act, he constantly screamed at the Home Office officials, why on earth can't we get rid of all these both asylum seekers, and when he was told it was a Human Rights Act, he kept on saying, my God, we made a terrible mistake. That is the evidence of the civil servants who were in the office in number 10 and heard it. Let me just finish.
3: I haven't said <laughs> a thing. I'm
2: change my body. See, I, see, I sense <laughs> it. I sense it coming. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, there are good things. Can I just explain one thing? That's quite important. I'm, said, one of course, sentence. No, I'm one sentence. Right.
1: Of course, you say, forgive me, but you're accusing me of a thought crime. I mean, in other words, if he passed the Act, you can't use that as evidence that he blighted Britain. He passed it. No, I didn't, it, and I then didn't say that But I didn't, didn't really mean to pass but it. But I didn't say that he regretted passing it.
2: He did pass it. What I can't understand about people when they criticise the book is that if they want to have things about Northern Ireland and freedom of exchange at great length, they should write a book about it. Get, I took.
3: I have. Then <laughs> they should, then
2: you read it. I wrote a book which is far too long, but Fair I do enough. suggest you buy it because it's a really good read which focuses on five areas... Let me finish. Five areas... You're never going to finish!
1: Go on, do your five. I'm not going to start. No, he's, he's,
3: now, he's now touting his book and Mick's letting him. He's complaining because I'm trying to get a word. Yeah, briefly, you're
1: basically saying you, you were not trying to do the whole waterfront, you were doing the things on which you think he was, could be found guilty. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah
2: which he should be judged on, not ground okay. guilty. OK. Understood, and you listed
5: right. that right. So it's a very See, I, 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 I've read the book, and it's well-written, it's very entertaining. Well done. My, <laughs> uh, my, my... my, My concern about it is this. We live in a world where there is a high level of cynicism about government, there's a lot of apathy towards politicians. Being in government, running countries, is a very difficult thing to do. I often want to condemn this government and David Cameron and everything that they do. But having worked in Number 10, I know that the main reality of government is that it's very tough, it's very hard, and it's full of people trying to do the best they can in difficult circumstances. The reason I object to your book, Tom, is that I don't think it's a public service to write a book in order to entertain people by trying to portray a person and an entire government as being evil and wrong, when the truth is, as you well know much more complex than that, and much more wicks than that. And actually, people need to read about the truth, not just to read things that are entertaining and pander to their prejudices.
1: Okay. I should just remind you, this is not the trial of Tom Bow <laughs> Or of David Aronovich. It is the trial of Tony Blair. <laughs> um, uh, where is the other microphone? Ten years later from now, if we are here talking about problems with education, national health service, are
2: we still being, still complaining and blaming Tony Blair?
1: <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> I suppose that was a point in a way directed at you, isn't yes. it? which is, of course, you know, yeah. not everything got marvellous, Well, is true of every government?
4: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think all governments have a problem in education because Educationists uh, are seen as lefties, whether they're in schools or local authorities or universities. I mean, there were a lot of people who did know about education in 1997, and very few of them were consulted because there were a number of people around who thought they had the simple answer. And, of course, you're right, education is very complex, and it's not going to be easy to lift those standards. But I think one of the problems was that Blair wasn't looking in the right place.
1: Okay. Another... Yes, there we are.
5: Um, what effect can government actually have? What is the lag time between a policy being introduced and statistics for the children being literate or otherwise actually coming through?
1: Tom
2: Ba.: Well, in a nutshell, what is very important to understand is that in 2000 and why, 2001, the test showed great improvements amongst children. And from 2001 onwards, they plateaued or went down. And none none of the Labour people, the educationalists or Michael Barber, who's head of the delivery, could understand why. And the reason was, as uh, Margaret Brown explained, is that the tests were fixed. The results were poor and there had been an inheritance of good students from the Tory years. And so it was very easy to measure where the tests and everything were going wrong. The heart of this education argument, as it is on health and everything, is you can measure it very quickly. Productivity in the health service went down. it's measured by the King's Fund. The educational standards went down because it's measured by endless numbers of universities who did crunch the numbers of the tests of the children. And they saw the deterioration. And that was all caused by Coney Blair's government, and that is the blight. Thank and you And what much. I object... I, one sentence is... I do object to one thing about this whole argument, where Matthew says, I want the truth. There is no such thing as the left no and the right no, as the truth. There is an opinion. There is an interpretation. There is a judgment based on a set of facts which themselves are subject. to. So you shouldn't actually accuse me of distorting the truth, because I didn't. What I okay. did was, I took facts and I interpreted them, And a last word to Professor
1: Brown.
4: Right. I think that there is a problem because often the tests aren't the same tests. And, you know, so actually to compare standards is very difficult because you get slippage of standards or you get different tests. But actually, in two cases, we have results from the same schools before and after the numeracy strategy. And they show a very small change, and this is primary schools, um, There is a small improvement, but a third of the schools had worse results after the numeracy strategy than they had before it. And those are exactly the same schools with the same intakes five years apart, two years before, two years after. Um, We also know that in those schools, there was a greater split between the top and the bottom. So this notion that the gap was closed in those schools, the gap had opened even further.
1: Thank you for your patience, Professor Brown. Thank you very much indeed. First of all, let me remind you what the vote was before the debate. Those who believed that Tony Blair was a blight on Britain, 38%. After the debate, 64%. (laughs) Those before the debate who believed he was not a blight on Britain... 29% after the debate, also gone up, but much less, 33%. So the real story of tonight's debate is the undecideds. Before the debate, 33%. After the debate, 3%. A swing in favour of Tony Blair being guilty in this trial, of being a blight on Britain, of plus 11%. It only remains just before you leave, ladies and gentlemen, for me to thank, as I know you will want to thank, first of all yourselves for your excellent questions, David Aronovich, Tom Bauer, John McTernan, Matthew Taylor, Michael Clarke, and Professor Margaret Brown.
0: Thanks for joining us on this episode of Legacy of War, a miniseries by Intelligence Squad. We'll be back in a week with a bonus episode with General Petraeus on the lasting legacy of the Iraq War on modern foreign policy. This series was produced by Faraj Jassat and Catherine Hughes with artwork and editing from Catherine Hughes.